We are entering a new age, an age demanding greater collaboration, enhanced creativity, heightened agility. Welcome to Agile and Beyond, a podcast for agile enthusiasts, design thinkers, team builders, and organization designers. With practitioners and thinkers, we explore the future of work, the evolutions in leadership mindset, and the revolutions in the human-centered innovation around experience and purpose. In episode one of a three-part conversation with Chuck Durfee, Scrum Master, Agile Denver Board Member Emeritus, recent MBA graduate, recovering developer, and a friend of neon to peers everywhere, we discuss the following. His six-year history with Agile Denver and the evolution of the Mile High Agile Conference, his experience as a Scrum Master and his first experiment with Agile Scrum, his early revelations with Agile, startup-like experiences, and the evolutionary path of backlog refinement. War rooms, Kanban style boards, tracking and flow optimizations, the invaluable practice of asking questions, grassroots idea generation and dispersion, his intuitive way of uncovering motivations, enticing people to apply their interests in new ways, developing cross-functional teams and organizations, leveraging transferable skill sets and cross-training, enhancing empathy by getting developers to think from a customer's point of view, Developing a vocabulary from patterns and how doing things empirically makes it difficult to name what you're doing. Collaboration, Paul Rayner, and the need to develop a ubiquitous language. Design thinking, domain-driven design, cross-training, and the development of multidisciplinary teams and organizations. Experimentation, innovation, and managing risk, and much more. And now welcome to the first episode of a three-part conversation with Chuck Durfee. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, uh, Chuck. Thanks, Dan. I'm glad to be here. I'm here with Chuck, uh, Chuck Durfee uh, with SAP Hybris. That's right. And uh, he was kind enough to, to join me today to uh, talk about all the stuff that he's been doing in, in Denver and in North Denver and, I guess, the Broomfield area. That's true, yeah. Boulder that's... area, I guess. Yep, I, I range all over the Denver area. All over. So. And you've been act, very active in the, the Agile community here in, in the area, correct? That's true. I've been associated with Agile Denver, which is a really large user group community. Uh, I've been associated with them for almost six years now. All right, and that's we we met at the was it in May? Was it beginning of May or? Was I it, think so. Yes, I think it was the first week of May. We met at the thank you dinner for the volunteers for Mile High Agile to twenty sixteen. That's right. Yes, that was where we first had our big conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, it. Allison Weiss was was kind of sitting there between us facilitating the conversation because she's she's I've spoken with her a great deal and she spoke very highly of of all the work that you've uh, been doing for the community and all the and your podcast and 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 uh, all that you've been giving at, at, to your teams and and everything. 
That's really sweet of her. She's been a workhorse for Adel Denver for a long time, and now she's finally on the board. We're really excited to have her. That's excellent. That's excellent. So how? when did you first get involved with uh, Agile Denver, or, or what are your earliest member, memories of, of the organization? So I had attended some of the user group meetings as just a, a spectator like many other people, and then I heard that they were putting a conference together. That was the first Mile High Agile conference in 2011, wow. and so I volunteered to help out that day and found myself uh, being used for various uh Different activities, you know, stuffing badges, proctoring rooms, running AV, and uh, I kind of fell in love with it. So I continued to be involved with the organization, doing more and more. Uh, I ended up joining the board of Agile Denver in 2013. I was the conference coordinator for the 2014 conference. So it's just been escalating from there. These days I'm a board member emeritus. So (laughs) we have a two-year term, so my term ended. Well, that's very good. Actually, this this reminds me of a conversation I had with my podcast partner from my other podcast. We wanted to do a show on term limits for the government. We we thought that that would be a good thing uh, to kind of clean out clean out the uh, leadership every so often. So I I I think that's good that uh, Agile Denver is is sort of using that to create a more democratic organization. Well, it's certainly important to infuse uh, traditional ideas and some longevity and history of the organization along with fresh new ideas coming in from the outside. So I think you need a good balance of both. I agree. I agree. I agree. So how many in that first conference in 2011, how many people attended? Yeah, it was only 200 people or so. That's not bad for a... No, it was it was a good conference. We had uh, one keynote speaker was Gene Tabeka, and then we had a single track with about a half a dozen speakers and an open space. That's great. That's and then, of great. course, you were there in uh, 2015. It's uh, about three times as big and a lot more speakers these days. There were 24 speakers this year. That's impressive. Uh, two keynotes. That's impressive. So what... Uh, your when you got started with Agile, mm-hmm. or actually, the, perhaps there are two different things. The way you got started with Agile and joining Agile Denver, were they were those coincident events? No, not at all. My first uh, experience with Agile was uh, as a Scrum Master in two thousand four. I was working for a company called MDC Holdings, which is down in this neck of the woods. We're in South Denver right now. Uh, Richmond American Homes is what they do business as. Uh, I was a member of a software development team. I was the lead engineer, and we decided that we were going to try this Agile thing. And I had the most interest, so I became the Scrum Master. And that was, uh, well, it's been, what, almost 11 years now, and I haven't done anything since. Wow, wow. And how did that, when you, when you started that, that group, how many, how many development teams were in the particular division that you were working in? Uh, mm. When you started this uh, this agile initiative at MDLC Holdings, uh, there were I want to say that there were approximately five to six development teams that were working on various projects. They were pretty small. The development teams there would be two or three people, and then they would have uh, product folks who were spread across multiple teams. Interesting. So when you started it. Did you try to promote it across to the other teams, or or did you sort of have the mindset, my team is going to do this, the other teams can do what they want to do, and we'll, we'll kind of align or synchronize in Scrumfall or yeah, something no, of that, that nature? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So it was, uh, management was very supportive and 
it was an idea that we had come up with in a one-on-one -on -one meeting and so we decided to go ahead and give it a try with this one particular team and see how it went when it went well we decided to expand to the other teams but that was a decision that was made more at the management level this was more of a top-down implementation I've done grassroots as well but this one uh, enjoyed some good support that's great so so you were the pilot team we I were guess. the pilot team and so I became the de facto expert excellent excellent and how did that experiment for the company work it, it went pretty well uh, I was there an additional three years afterward and we were churning out features and doing pretty well with it uh, we didn't do anything really crazy with scrum it was pretty vanilla it, mm -hmm. but that met the needs of the the groups that we had that's great. Now, when you started to do it, it was an experiment. You'd never done this before in a That's team. Right, yeah. What were some of the early revelations that you had when you started doing this or the revelations of your team? The ones that I remember most particularly were the product manager, and then we had a business analyst who fell into a product owner role. They were really excited about the level of interaction that they were having with the developers, and the we were ideating on various uh, enhancements for the application that we were working on. Uh, it was called Aspect, and its job was to allow people to customize sale contracts for custom-built homes. So if you wanted an upgraded kitchen, for example, you would put that information in this, and it would churn out legal documents that you would sign. So that's what its goal was. Okay. And so we had some innovative ideas about how we wanted to deal with um, various aspects of that home buying process. There, uh, one feature that didn't exist in the system beforehand was this idea where you could um, create uh, spec homes. So you could speculate how if you wanted to do uh, these 10 custom features on your home, what would that cost and what would it look like? before you would have to generate a whole contract and just throw it away. And so we were taking a process that was maybe 40 minutes long and turning it into a five-minute process for people. So it allowed Richmond American to, or at least their sales force, to perhaps upsell people or uh, convince them that they could min-max their home buying experience in a more custom way than had been able to be done in the industry before. That's great. So who was involved in these, I mean, the, the this ideation process, did this occur sure. within one of the three prescribed scrum ceremonies? Or well, was this something that occurred outside of the normal so scrum process? Back in 2004, there wasn't really a great concept of backlog refinement like there is today, but that's really what we were doing was uh, going through that process and doing the I normally advise teams to spend about 10% of their time forward-looking, and so we were doing that process. We just didn't have a name for it at the time. That's so great. I would call it backlog refinement these days. That's great. Now, when you were doing that backlog refinement, uh, this was... I, I guess there there is the there's the business backlog... And then there's the refined backlog that the developers are participating in. Which were you involved in both of these? Back were you were you involved with the the product owners or the business uh, developers who were getting the information from the the clients? Were you involved at that level, or you would collect their their business prior prioritized list, and then you would add in the technical backlog? 
items like technical debt and things of that nature into that. So your question suggests the path suggests that we <laughs> no, it does. It suggests the evolutionary path that we went through. Mm-hmm. In the beginning it was very much that we would have this log of stuff that the business had created that we were going to work through. But as time went on and they began to see that the the engineering group had some good uh, ideas that would had some business application, it became more of a collaborative process. And we got to the point where um, I or one of the other developers on the team, there were three of us, would suggest a feature, and there would be little, very little argument. It would be more uh, the collaboration that I really yearn for, where they would say, well, let's try to make this happen, and let's talk about how we could market it and move forward with this particular idea. It was very open. Very cool. Very cool. So it sounds a little bit more like a smaller or like a more of a startup sort of mentality within this organization. Now that I have more experience in my life, absolutely, I would characterize the kind of working mode that we had uh, very similar to a startup mode. Interesting. So your next big experience, your next big experiment with Agile, where in what environment did that occur? Oh, that's an excellent question. I'm going to have to rack my brain for a second here, Dan. Take your time. Um, probably the the next large experiment that I had was at a company called Tesis, which is down in Golden. They're responsible for commercial credit card. Well, they're responsible for credit card processing. The Tesis itself uh, does about 90% of the traffic that goes through North America goes through their systems. So whenever you swipe your card... Uh, it's probably going through a TSIS mainframe, and they route and authorize those purchases. Wow. So that's that's their bread and butter. But uh, they also have uh, subsidiary products, and the one that I was working on was called Center Suite, and its job is to manage commercial card programs. So if you uh, were to work for a company like Home Depot or TJ Maxx or something, you might have a com- corporate credit card, and that might be administered administered, I should say, by a central uh, administration group, probably in finance. They have a few special needs that a commercial, or sorry, a um, consumer card doesn't have. For example, if I'm going to be booking a two-week hotel trip, that could easily go over my authorization limit. So they may want to provide me a temporary uh, limit increase that would work for one particular transaction, or they might want to start um, segregating by merchant codes. Uh, that's something that your health uh, HSA card does today. Um, if you swipe your card and it's not uh, used with a particular MCC group, a merchant, uh, I forget what MCC stands for off the top of my head, but if it's in that particular category, why they, they probably don't give it as much scrutiny as if you were to say go to 7-Eleven. I see, I see. So, and this does this also involve, uh, I remember you, when I was overseas... Sometimes I would use my my credit card or something, and it would say fraud, possible fraud alert, and Absolutely. so it would block block it. I'd get an email mm-hmm. or or a telephone message or something of this nature. Did was right. you so also involved in that uh, uh, sort of thing? So those are the kinds of rules that uh, our application would allow you to set up. That's absolutely true. Interesting. So, uh, but Agile was your question, so I should yeah, probably yeah. touch upon that, right? Um, at that place, uh, we had uh, a bunch of groups as well, and they were just getting started in Agile, and I'd had some experience there. They were on maybe their second sprint of ever having done Agile when I got there. 
And so I offered to share some of my expertise and uh, management, again, was very gracious. Um, I'm thinking particularly of a gentleman named Dan Zimmerman who was really uh, instrumental in fueling that particular transformation. We went through and uh, created this war room. Uh, we had a bunch of magnetic uh, boards. We would uh, take, uh, I guess, like gaffer's tape or whatnot, and we would create grids with them mm-hmm. and write on Sharpies and and we eventually moved to uh, magnetize cards, but everybody would have their stand up in this particular room and we would start moving things through. And as we started that process, uh, I started thinking about ways to optimize flow of things. And I ended up developing what I now know as Kanban style um, boards and tracking and inter team operations and things along that line. Um, I wish I had uh, read uh, David Anderson's Kanban book maybe a few years earlier. It would have been really helpful because <laughs> <laughs> we made, we obviously made some mistakes along the way. But right. uh, the end result for TSIS was we went from about 17 features a year to 38 similar-sized features a year. That's amazing. That's and amazing. It was enough to get the people in uh, – Columbus, Georgia is where their headquarters is to come down and figure out what our secret sauce was. That's great. That's an amazing success. And and actually, yeah. given the fact, well, given the fact that you uh, you discovered for yourself through your own experiments a lot of the a lot of the lessons out of David Anderson's book, uh, like the Kanban book. It it would you say that these lessons were internalized perhaps a bit more well, certainly, than had yeah. you just read them in a book. No, very true. <clears throat> That's very true. Uh, having discovered them empirically was very valuable. Uh, it certainly allowed us to, uh, to have faith in them, whereas uh, if we had just read them and were trying them out of a book, it might not have had the same credibility. Interesting. Now, the experience when when you first met with these teams and they had only, they only had two sprints under their belt, and you had been working with this what three you had like three or four or more years of experience in this environment. What were some of the what were the top three or four lessons learned sure. that you could kind of tell them? Well, we did this, and it, you might want to keep this, this, and this, and this in mind, or something of that nature. How did you approach I, that? I, I wish that I had gone uh, that formally. So uh, the way that uh, Agile really got took off at Tesis was we there was a in order to prove myself, I was asked to uh, do a fairly simple, small feature for this web application, and that was to allow custom labeling. Mm. Uh, we'll come back to that, I'm sure, in a little bit. And I decided to do that through some simple HTML hacking and, and allowed them to do that. And they were really impressed because you could do it all throughout the site. It was just not an approach that they had thought of. And there were other small features in the backlog. And the developers were very interested in getting them done, and they had some business value. Many of these were technical debt items that they were really uh, encumbered by. And I said, well, you know, if you, if you can give me a few people part-time, I can make this happen. They weren't so willing, but we started talking at, you know, at the lunch table and across the aisle and said, okay, well, let's do this thing. And so we would sit there and we planned it out. I'd got this whole backlog going and we would do little bits of it. 
And there was enough energy and interest that was driven there that eventually uh, I'm sitting in a regular cubicle, maybe two by two foot, and you have 16 or 17 people who are standing there looking over and talking about what little bits of things that they could do. And that's when management took notice and they said, you know, this, this actually has some legs. Let's do this more formally. All right. There's a, let, let me, I, I don't want to use the term because it's overused, but can we please unpack what you just said? Because there's yeah, like no, three fine. or four different, there are three or four significant ideas there that are, you combined sure. there um, that made me think of a lot of things. One is, was this an example of some kind of pair programming on steroids or because you had oh, all these people looking over your shoulder at once and and collaborating together or what, what? Um, there was a little there was some pair programming that happened at that time but it was not a formal practice until much later at thesis uh, we started doing it more intentionally mm -hmm. the idea was more i was very new to this system so i didn't know it very well at all so i would sit down with people and start asking them questions about different modules and components of the system and people would find that that interaction was really valuable and that we would get more done. So it, that evolved into a practice that some but not all teams used. Uh, the teams were free to either accept or discard practices as they wanted. We didn't mandate much beyond the basic reporting capability, or sorry, the reporting responsibilities that a scrum team has. It was a lot of information in, in what you did there. And Okay, here, here's a question. Here's there's the yeah. technical – clearly you have technical chops and you have technical skills because you're able to get people to kind of listen to your ideas. You're able to prove things. How did you get – what I want to find yeah, out more here ahead. are the people skills. You, you had a certain idea. You're, you're going – you're having lunch with these fellows. You're sitting across the table. These are other developers and or middle managers. Mostly developers, QA, other scrum team member kind of roles. Okay. These are just the the ground level of the organization. As I had mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, I have some grassroots experience too, and this is definitely more along that realm. Okay, yeah, and this is this is this is fascinating because it has grassroots. The, the spread of grassroots grassroots memes is 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 um, applicable in so many fields. Absolutely, and so many human endeavors, and yes. perhaps all. It's 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 the essence of any sort of spreading of any kind of idea so I'm I, I I'm curious to know how you what what skills you brought to bear or what sort of strategy that you were employing to to execute this um, a lot of the strategy wasn't conscious uh, a lot of it has to do with talking to individual people figuring out what motivates them and uh, setting up situations that further whatever that particular idea or the the flowering of that particular idea. So for one person who said, um, you know, that technical appro approach won't work, we'd sit down and we'd make it work. Or I'd find out it didn't work. I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that I have all the answers because there have been many times in my career where these ideas haven't gone anywhere, but enough of them have that I put bread on the table. <laughs> so, which is good for me. Um, other times it would be encouraging them to take something that they're already interested in and applying it in a new way. That certainly uh, I found with folks like business analysts, 
they were really intent on focusing on business requirements and trying to figure out how what to do with this um, business problem that they had. And it turns out that if you're looking at software, the test mindset is pretty similar to that in a lot of ways where you're probing and exploring ideas and seeing what works and what doesn't work and that's a pretty good transition path for either testers to get into to business analysis or back and forth it's just uh, applying those same kind of analytical skills to a different realm it's testing uh the testing of options exactly Okay. The, so, gro- the groan zone, as I heard yeah, it was referred yes, to. Yes, the groan zone. The, the groan yes, zone. I've heard that too. Yeah. Um, so in one particular case, you would talk to a tester and you'd say, well, let's think about, we have this feature, what are the logical uh, conclusions of that feature being out there and what would people do with it and where, how would it interact with what's out there already and what would they might or what might customers be interested in doing beyond that and getting them to think about the product in a more holistic way um, well maybe not holistic but more uh, from the perspective of the customer this was back in uh, 2009 2010 and that was just beginning to to blossom too but what like customer focus development is that yes that's I guess you would call it that these days. Or what would you what would you have called it back then? Mm, I didn't have a name for it back then. But that's the problem with doing things empirically. It, it's uh, n- the patterns are not always obvious because I only had one example. It was only after uh, going from places various places in my career and beginning to talk to people who were doing similar things that I began to notice patterns. And that caused research on my end to start learning some vocabulary. Interesting. Interesting. Which comes down to having a shared, uh, this was, I went to um, Paul Rayner's talk uh, last night on collaboration and he spoke of uh, developing in collaboration. It's very important. Ubiquitous language, a shared language. And I guess this is, you became aware of this at least intuitively and, and then you sought to learn the language of the other, I guess. That's true, yeah. This was about the time that I started learning about domain-driven design, coincidentally enough. Interesting. I can give you another illustrative example. Um, This one, uh, there's a particular business analyst that I'm thinking of. Uh, I had mentioned earlier that we were, I just did this quick HTML hack, but we had decided that we wanted to do more than just change labels. We wanted to actually have customers be able to change business logic. Uh, this was a .NET app, enterprise application written in C-sharp. Clearly that's not going to work so well because you'd have to recompile, redeploy the whole thing. So we needed a different solution. And there was a, well, he's he's an architect now, but at the time he was a junior developer. <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard for me to think of him that way. Now the time has passed, but we decided that we needed some sort of scripting language. And at the time, uh, Microsoft was just beginning to play with uh, putting dynamic languages on top of the .NET Core framework. And Iron Ruby caught our interest. So we ended up building an Iron Ruby interface to our application. And what that allowed people to do was 
write simple Ruby methods that could get called by the application. By so, the .NET application. Correct. I'm sorry. So yes, you by the .NET uh, application. You say inline Ruby or iron Ruby, like the uh, like FE. Yeah, iron like uh, yeah, uh, iron like filings or what? Iron yeah, filing. Yeah, okay. That's the stuff. Okay. Interesting. So uh, what that ended up doing was we had business analysts who were suddenly starting to write code because they would start writing methods to start exploring some of these new capabilities in the system. And we ended up turning that capability over to our first level support people. So if you wanted um, different logic for handling, uh, I had mentioned uh, temporary credit authorization limit changes, they were able to do that for customers. Wow, this is, this that was is serious cross training. This is the it this was is, yeah. This is the, the 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 development of multidisciplinary teams. Yes, but e, but you even but you took it to the next level. It wasn't just creating a multidisciplinary development team. You were creating a multidisciplinary organization. We're certainly beginning to, and I think that was the thing that caught uh, management's interest from Tesis. But they decided to come in. Uh, they were a largely mainframe-driven organization, and they decided that um, their COBOL programmers back at headquarters probably couldn't handle that, so they decided to move into uh, a TQM direction. So mm. um, that was very frustrating for a lot of the Golden staff, and they had a lot of turnover after that decision was made, myself included. Hmm. Hmm. So They're still doing well. This completes episode one of a three-part conversation with Chuck Durfee. You can connect with Chuck Durfee on LinkedIn, follow him on Twitter at Chuck Durfee, and read his latest blog post at neontapir.github.io. That's N-E-O-N-T-A-P-I-R. He would be happy to receive your questions and comments at neontapir at gmail.com. You will, however, have to wait until the publishing of episode three to learn what a Neon Tapir is. However, if you really must know now, you could either email him or view his blog. The logo depicts a Neon Tapir. If you wish to learn more about Agile Denver, you can connect with the organization on LinkedIn and follow Agile Denver on Twitter at Agile Denver. To learn about future meetings, search for Agile Denver on meetup.com at meetup.com forward slash Agile Denver. In the upcoming part of the conversation with Chuck Durfee, we cover the spreading of ideas, intrinsic motivation, developmentally driven organizations, people innovation, the internalization of the Agile mindset, Montessori style education, leadership, language learning, design patterns, bridging between the tech world and the business world, Conway's law, avant-garde organization designs, matrix organizations, scarcity mentality, the limits of the industrial model, exploratory play, and balancing creativity with structure. You've been listening to Agile and Beyond. Visit agileandbeyond.co and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, keep evolving.